You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 29th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 29th of February. This is Monocle's House View. Today, the coronavirus in Europe. As the outbreak continues to spread, we'll look at how governments and companies are working to manage the crisis and curb public panic. Plus, hydrocauliflower will consider the predicament of a high-profile physician and his pesky presidential patient who simply refuses to eat his vegetables. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. A very good morning to you from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. It's a pleasure to have you with us here on this rather chilly Saturday morning. Uh, thank heavens for coffee. I can see it just arriving, courtesy of the Monocle Cafe on Chilton Street here in Mal- Malabone. I'm also hoping that there will be a couple of buns, cinnamon buns and cardamom buns to go with it. Uh, let's meet our guests this morning. So our friend, a regular contributor, Stephen DL, is here. He's a journalist specialising in Russian affairs and making his Monocle 24 debut, the radio presenter and communications professional, uh, Andrew Parsonage. Welcome to you. Good morning. Uh, Can we just talk about the date? Because it's special, isn't it? It is. In fact, as we were coming on air, I said, well, this time last year, it wasn't this time last year, (laughs) because it happens once every four years. And then I feel very sorry for those people who are born on the 29th of February, who every time the 29th comes around, are told by everyone says to them, oh, you're so much younger than the rest of us, because you've only had so many birthdays. Um, But yes, here we are once again. I notice on our scripts here, somebody has very carefully put everything as the 1st of March for today. (laughs) Uh, um, now, Andrew, uh, we haven't had you on the show before, so tell us a little bit about, about your background. Well, th- thank you for having me this morning. Um, so I'm based in Bristol, so I had to get up at the ungodly hour of Harper's Five, or actually Harper's Four this morning to get on the Harper's Five train to be here. So, so lovely to be here and looking forward very much to my strong coffee. Um, so yes, my life in Bristol involves uh, radio, audio, so I'm the presenter and producer of the Founded and Grounded podcast, and we uh, focus on startup businesses and share the experiences of um, West Country entrepreneurs with the broader startup community in that part of the world. I mean, Bristol's very much a, a tech and startup hub. And then for the rest of the time, I support local organisations with their communication needs, including um, one of the NHS trusts in Bristol. So now that's really interesting because, of course, that gives you a bit of a window on the inside mm-hmm. workings of the NHS. And right now, of course, we're grappling with coronavirus. So the first case of the coronavirus in Wales was reported yesterday, bringing the total number of cases here in the UK to 17. Now, the patient had recently returned from northern Italy, where a severe outbreak of the virus has shut down major urban centres. It's even forced the postponement of the Salone del Mobile design event. That's the uh, the Milan <coughs> Furniture Fair. Now, if we accept that the spread of the virus is now inevitable, is the bigger question one of how it's managed. And I'd like to start with you, Andrew, and just talk about that inside experience mm. of of the, the Bristol NHS and, and just how how that differs from what we're seeing in the press. Well, it, it's, it's fascinating, Georgina. I mean, obviously, I spend my week, a, lot of part, a large part of my week in the NHS, and then this morning on the way in, I was looking at the front pages, and it, it feels like two completely different things, really. So in the NHS, they have published very clear guidance And a lot of this is around simple, basic personal hygiene and common sense. Uh, The information is there online. You can go on the NHS website. I actually went on last night to double check it, but the information is there. It's on uh, uh, YouGov 
uh, as well. So the, the, the advice is there. It has been regularly updated. Um, and certainly working in, in North Bristol NHS Trust, uh, precautions have been taken. The NHS, uh, from what I see, is very well prepared. Um, these are healthcare professionals. They've, they've done this kind of thing before. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I, I've, I'm very confident that the UK is, from a healthcare point of view, is, is, is ready for this. Mm. Um, I, I think the danger, and this is where the media have a huge responsibility here. Yes, I know they have to shift units. I know they have to sell papers. But also there is a, uh, they have a duty of care not to spread panic. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if, if you read the papers this morning, just a, a quick glance at the front pages, uh, a lot of the language is now, we're putting us on a war footing. Lots of very sort of almost a military style war, wartime language, which is quite interesting. Mm. Stephen, I think there's a really interesting question here about, I mean, as we know, this is having a huge economic impact. But do we then, I think we've got two very distinct choices, which is if we accept the fact that that, that is going to spread anyway. Do we then say, fine, we shut down all sorts of major events, Glastonbury goes, football fixtures go, we stop using the tube and, and all of that uh, in the hope to contain it uh, and the economy is is screwed? Or do we do we carry on? Um, and I think that, that that's a very delicate um, uh, question to address. I mean, yeah, I, yeah it is. Um, and I think... It's a question of getting a balance. I mean, I agree totally with Andrew that, you know, some of the headlines suggest that, you know, this is Armageddon and that um, we're all going to die and, and, and so on, which actually, you know, the amount of um, the, the re- level of mortality, of course, is very, very low. Um, around the world so far, it's been about 0.02 percent, um, which is very sad for those who die. But and, and yes, people will get sick. But but, you know, this is not as far as we know, as bad as the flu outbreak, the influenza outbreak after the First World War, which killed more people worldwide than the First World War had done, Mm. a little-known fact. Um, It's not Ebola either, which, of course, was terrible in Africa. Um, But it is serious. And actually, the the point you make about large events, I mean, um, you know, I'm I'm a huge football fan, um, but... And that's that's where I'm thinking. It's the problem. The problem is that people are not properly educated in how to um, behave. Often, the number of times you just see someone sneezing without covering their mouth. I mean, just you know, in 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 everyday life, they've got a cold or something, or they've just got a sneeze. And I, I'm, I, you know, I always think, you know, for God's sake, you know, get out of tissue at least, or at least you know, cover your mouth with your hand. It's that sort of that. It's as simplistic as that. People need to be told, look, you've got to do that. And they're now being told, you know, wash your hands regularly, um, which you know, that's a good piece of advice. But it, while they're not doing things like that. You get you know a big event with forty fifty thousand people there, um, coughing and sneezing, and, and and it's in the outdoors, and and you know that is how this spreads. We know it spreads very easily, so I think we've got to get a balance. You know, do we actually think about cancelling events like that, which are not vital to the wider economy? But on the other hand, we can't just you know we can't shut London down. We can't close the tube or stop the buses or whatever because life has to go on. Absolutely. Mm. Um, now Iran is a, a place where which is causing much concern. Apparently, there are much larger numbers than have been reported. I, I was um, amused is the wrong word, but it was very interesting to see the uh, health minister there deny that there were any or very few cases, and only to have to admit whilst after, mopping his brow yes, yeah. that he in fact was affected himself. Um, but, of course, the worry here is that um, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, who, as we know, is in mm. prison there, uh, has has also got flu-like symptoms at the moment. People are very worried about her. Another very interesting thing I just spotted in The Times, apparently dogs can get it. Yes, yes. And, and, and I don't know if you cover such... Uh 
uh, papers as the Daily Star, but that was their front page this morning, that dogs can get the coronavirus, um, which I don't think any of the other papers covered. But uh, yes, they've, they've, they've gone that angle. Extraordinary. Uh, also reports about Italy, the, the, the radio station at the heart of these nine towns that are most affected has called it, renamed itself, I think, Radio Red Alert or something like that. But what they're talking about is how family life has become much more important. So as people are stopping going out, whether that's legislated or not, um, that people are spending a lot more time at home with their families. That can only surely be a good thing. I mean, unless it's my family. <laughs> I'd be I'm more than happy to spend more time with my family. Um, yes, although I did see then, on the other hand, um, one of the women who has returned, apparently not showing signs yet, a British woman returned from... Um, uh, from Italy recently, and so therefore they've said, yes, we've gone into self-isolation. The children, of course, have gone back to school. Well, <laughs> that, either you, you all do it or none of you do it. But, I mean, here's another interesting thing. We're all freelancers here. Mm. If I had to self-isolate for two weeks, that's my income gone. Ah, that's because you're a, a producer and a rather, big pardon, presenter in a studio, whereas, um, you know, I freelance by writing and by translating, um, and, uh, in fact, I've just taken on a commission for a new book that I'm going to translate from Russian to English, and that's going to see me isolated um, for long hours in front yeah. of my computer uh, and sending it off by email. So, um, actually, that wouldn't affect me as badly as many other people. Yeah. yeah. What would be interesting is to see how many people decide for themselves what they're going to do. So, irrespective of the government advice or, or what the NHS say, it's right. I'm definitely not going to get on that train to London. I'm not going to go on the underground because of those that that fear factor, which you know, again, looking at the headlines this morning, the media is sort of fueling that. Yeah. yeah. Uh- Donald Trump mm. has been attempting to kind of blame people about coronavirus. I mean, it's very odd, isn't it? What's he been saying, Andrew? Well, I, I know that uh, one thing he has been saying is he's, he's actually trying to reassure his own people. I mean, we talk about the role of, of politicians here. It's an impossible situation. But I think for Trump, obviously Trump is not your normal politician. He's effectively said to his own people, no, we've got it. We've got it. And we've, we've got a, a, a grip on this. Uh, and that's... That's the message he's selling to his own people. And obviously, the reality is, is, is somewhat different. So, uh, um, yes, I mean, Donald Trump is, is, is his own... Well, he's his own man on this on this particular issue. Yeah, is he his own man when it comes to what he chooses to eat, though? Mm. So any parent who's tried to convince a stubborn child of the importance of eating one's vegetables will probably sympathise with Dr Ronnie Jackson. So he's recent, recently spoken out about the difficulty he had with a patient who prefers pizza over parsnips and burgers over brain food. You can guess where this is going. <laughs> Dr Jackson has even tried hiding tubs of ice cream. He's tried sneaking cauliflower in with the mashed potatoes in In this case, however, the patient in question is not just another stubborn child. It is the President of the United States. Now, Donald Trump, never uh, never known to willingly eat a vegetable, I understand. Um, What's extraordinary is that Jackson, who is his physician, had said before he was borderline obese. Now that he's taken up the the job, he definitely is obese and seems to have stopped eating his veg entirely or indeed anything at all while he was in India. Well, I mean, that, you know, does that surprise us? I mean, you know, he is a child. I mean, you know, he may be the president of the United States. He may be 70-odd years old or whatever, but, you know, he has a mental age of a five-year-old, as, as his tweets show and as his behaviour shows. Um, you know, I'm, if he were listening to this, you know, I would now be attacked on Twitter because he's so thin-skinned that... Thin-skinned but very fat, of course. Um, uh, that, now, you know, no that fat shaming. Um <laughs> I think what's we just really... said he's a beast. I mean... <laughs> no, that's cl- that's a clinical. Clinical, term. yeah, okay. Um, 
the, the, there's a book called The Toddler in Chief, um, which is written by his former economic advisor, Gary Cohn. Um, and he talks about basically how people try and manage him mm-hmm. in that way. So, mm-hmm. for instance, stealing a letter from his desk yes. uh, that withdrew the US from a, a trade agreement with South Korea, hoping that he'd forget about the letter, which I think he actually did. Um, he once ended a phone call from Trump by telling him he was brilliant and then he faked a bad connection. And I mean, the, the way that, that, that he is managed through food and through these other ways is enormously interesting, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah, well, I, I saw the interesting phrase, stealth cuisine. Yes. <laughs> Which is like, I thought, great, I have to use it with my own children, actually. Um, but but it, it's true. And, and I suppose, again, talking about Trump, he's not your usual, typical world leader, run-of-the-mill president. He's very different. He's his own person. Uh, and it's interesting how a number of his staff have had to resort to subterfuge to to make things happen or maybe to avoid things happening, uh, such particularly anything militarily. So, mm. um, yes, that's obviously how his dysfunctional White House has to operate in order to protect the rest of us almost. Yeah. I wonder how much um, leaders' diets affect their style of leadership, though. I mean, do you think that if, if somebody, you know, eats only red meat, perhaps they're particularly, I don't know, uh, aggressive? I'm sure they are. I mean, it, you know, as for a long time it's been said, we are what we eat. Um, and yeah, whether you know whether it goes quite that far, but I, I think it's it's not so much what is actually, we're actually eating it, but it's it's the mentality that goes behind it. So if we are a red meat eater, maybe we're a bit more can be a bit more mm. aggressive, a bit more forceful. Uh, if you are vegan, um, well, there's some pretty aggressive vegans out there, but um, particularly when it comes to talking about veganism, but I think more generally, perhaps that you know, often someone who is a vegan has chosen it because they have a much more peaceful lifestyle, calmer lifestyle, and they, you know, they and meditate. Simply not enough energy to and, do anything. <laughs> no, no, I think you're being unkind now. Um, but uh, no, I, so I, I, yeah, I'm sure that there is actually there's a link, but I don't think it's a direct link. Sort of, you know, food, stomach, brain. I think I think it goes, you know, via the the general lifestyle. Mm. Uh, Andrew, you've uh, had a look, I know, at what various leaders like to eat. Yeah, well, it was interesting because this this article in the Washington Post about Trump and his eating habits um, it it just led me to a little bit of research on the side and and uh, interesting over over the years obviously leaders have their preferred cuisines so I think Donald Trump obviously he goes down the fast food route and I think he's making almost a, a bit of a political statement there about great American brands what they call the four big food groups of KFC McDonald's pizza and Diet Coke I mean I'm sure other fast foods are available but those are the ones he goes by those four groups but um, obviously I think. Mrs. Thatcher, when she was in power, she resorted to I think, shepherd's pie and frozen lasagnas, from uh, from what I gather. And Fidel Castro, who you always have down as oh, that, that sort of revolutionary, but he was apparently back in the day a bit of an expert on how to cook lobster. Um, <laughs> but he actually, in the end, turned vegetarian because he wanted to live forever. But that didn't quite work out. It, so, no, he yeah. almost did it, though. I mean, he yeah. lived for a very long he did, time. He did it right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, so fascinating. Do you think, then, that America could be completely turned around if if, um, if, if Trump's doctor, Dr. Um, Dr. Ronnie, um, got his way? Um, no. <laughs> Sadly. That's <laughs> the honest answer. I think there's more... There's, there's, there's more um, flatulence to Trump than that. Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, it's, we, we are, when we look at America now, when we look at the world, actually, but um, particularly as take America, you know, we are, um, we're, we're looking at a sort of what would have been a fantasy land even 20 years ago. Um, I mean, it is quite absurd, the things that Trump comes out with. Uh, you know, for me, although we were all worried anyway, it was that moment when Sh- Sean Spicer, his then spokesman, 
the day after the inauguration, came out and said, there were more people at this inauguration than for Obama in 2009. And people immediately showed the two photographs, and you could see about a third of the number at Trump's. And, and hang on, what? And you realise that Spicer wasn't joking. And suddenly we're into this b- bizarre, in, in, extraordinary world where, um, and then I hate this term post-truth they talk about, you know, truth is truth. Um, still, and, and you know that and that was a lie um, about the number of people there, and and you know I love the fact that the Washington Post has been counting Trump's lies, and uh, about a month ago, the latest I saw, they were saying he'd already caught, he'd told sixteen thousand lies since being in office. Um, it's extraordinary, isn't it? it? Is. Yeah. Uh, I just want to read you this little bit from this article, which we've all found hilarious. Uh, let's say, to use a purely hypothetical example, that Trump has taken to attacking a federal judge, a federal jury, four women, federal prosecutors, and even his own attorney general, because they haven't been lenient enough towards one of Trump's convicted pals. White House, House chiefs under the White House physician's careful super, uh, supervision could sneak large amounts of ground turkey, known to be high in carbon inducing tryptophan into the president's morning sausages, his lunchtime taco bowls, his afternoon burgers and his meatloaf dinner. Continuing our hypothetical, let's say the president's mood does not sufficiently improve. He begins purging the intelligence community of anybody who's not provided a notarized statement of loyalty to him. At this point, the surreptitious nutrition team might inject mega doses of high fructose corn syrup into pastries, pizzas, hamburger buns, cakes and pies. After a brief sugar high, Trump would become lethargic, unable to complete the purge. And finally, a final hypothetical. Let's imagine public health officials warn Americans to prepare for a dangerous virus. But Trump can't even spell the name of the virus. And he sides with an economic advisor, one who predicted a recovery seven weeks before the crash of 2008, who says we have contained this. Even Republican lawmakers are dismayed. So the Culinary Intervention Agency takes covert action. Highly trained nutritionists load the presidential filet of fish with uh, chilli peppers extract and the meal results in a coughing fit. The germophobic president, convinced he has the unspellable virus, demands a multi-billion dollar mobilisation. <laughs> there we have it. That's how you, uh, that's how you uh, get a lot of money in for coronavirus. <laughs> well, yeah, but and unfortunately it doesn't sound too far from the truth. No. Well, let's have a look at the papers because of course many of them do lead with coronavirus. Coronavirus. But Stephen, as you were saying, for, for most of us, it's it's a, it's about the economic impact. Those of us that don't have underlying uh, health conditions that, that can reasonably expect to survive the virus. Um, now, I know that one businessman who's been complaining about it is Mark Constantine. Uh, he is, of course, the founder and operator of Lush. There's a big piece about him in The Guardian today. There is. Um, crisis hits just as Lush hoped to clean up. Quite a good title as well. Lovely picture of... Um, uh, pink, pink tea bag, tea bomb, tea bath bombs. Because you use real tea into your bath. Um, uh, and um, I, I'm, now you're sure I'm allowed to say this on Monoclama because yeah. there's um, this uh, health warning coming up, folks. In case you're a bit um, uh, squeamish about bad language. But um, so Mark Constantine, who's got this worldwide empire lush, which is not doing terribly well because directly related uh, to the coronavirus, uh, has been going around wearing a lapel badge which reads. Fuck, fuck, fuckity fuck. Um, Because, as he explains, at the moment I have got no shops open in Hong Kong or Milan. Venice is shut. A couple of months ago, half of bloody Spain was shut down owing to the Barcelona riots. 
Um, the fires in Catalonia in Australia provided another expletive. Um, <laughs> it's just, I, I just think it's, it struck me um, as a very human reaction to, you know, to this. You know, he's not suffering from it himself, um, like the vast majority of people are not suffering from it. Um, but it is having this knock-on economic effect, and it just struck me as, as you know, as a e- very good example of how someone can be carrying out an honest business, doing really well, and suddenly, because their shops are having to close in crucial markets, um, they're losing lots of money. And uh, you know, let's face it, we've already mentioned the stock market's going down. I, mean, mm. I read one quote; I think it said that this week the Dow Jones had dropped two hundred and ten. Was it trillion? Oh, I mean, the, 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 the stock market figures are, are terrible. I mean, Friday closed worse than for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's getting as bad or is already as bad mm. as 2008 and mm. the economic crash. And I think we are actually into another economic crash, which some economists, and I am not an economist, I hasten to add, but some have been saying for some time, you know, we're, we're getting back to what seems like normality, but in fact we're fooling ourselves. And I think that this, is the, you know, the, uh, the, the coronavirus outbreak is, is actually hastening us towards uh, an, uh, another recession. Mm. And it's going to be very, very interesting to see what it does vis-a-vis the trade war with China mm. uh, and also the whole row about Huawei. Suddenly all of these big Chinese so-called problems may, you know, go away, or at least for, for a little while. Um, now, we've been talking about coronavirus shutting down cities, uh, but they're not the only thing. That's not the only thing with the power to completely uh, shut down uh, the centre of a large city. Greta Thunberg, too, can do this. Uh, she was in Bristol. Uh, that's your hometown, Andrew. Mm. Yeah, yesterday. Mm. Tell us what was going on there. Well, this has been building up for, for several weeks, actually, when it was made known that she would be visiting. And Bristol, for those people who don't know the city, is very much a hotbed of activism. It always has been historically, and the environment is no different. Uh, it'll be being proud of its environmental credentials, although if you're a road, if you're a sort of a driver in Bristol, you'll think differently. Um, but yeah, so she, she's been coming. It is polarised opinion on social media, from what I've been following, um, because obviously she is very much allied with the young persons movement, and the older generations are struggling with that or with her. Um, and throughout the course of this last week, we've had warnings about you know the city going into meltdown, lockdown, and roads being closed, and schools having to close, so that young children can go on the climate march that she was fronting. And I think in the end, yesterday it was it was a pretty damp day, as it, as it probably was everywhere. Um, there still had you know several thousand people turned out. I think it was a, sort of over ten thousand people. I think it was estimated came out to see her in the rain to to uh, to speak and then to lead the march. And uh, it was all very orderly and very well organised, but. Um, I think what's quite interesting is just going back to that point about how she has polarised opinion. And I think um, what Greta has done is now people are probably looking at her and not the message. And I think it, the important thing is to get back to the message <laughs> because it's all, it's, it's, in way, for me anyway, it's, it's becoming too much about her and about her, how she conveys that message or her actions and the, uh, the, the, the accusations of hypocrisy in terms of how she gets around places and all that kind of thing. I mean, I noticed on page 15 of the Daily Telegraph where the, the feature is, and she's featured in a few pa- papers, but she's been called Our Generation's Gandhi. Mm. Um, so it is interesting how she is mobilising one generation, but possibly um, alienating another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one day we may look back and say she was the, the new messiah. Or a very naughty girl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was my guy, George. And what actually does, if I may, I just wanted to ask Andrew, um, as you know, someone looking from outside Bristol, mm. one of the the, the um, lines going around yesterday morning before the 
actual march took place was that the police had been saying, oh, you know, the measures, they've, they're, they're expecting more people, the measures they've been put in place for safety are, are not enough. Was that scaremongering on the part of the authorities or was that actually a genuine concern? I think, to be fair, it was a genuine concern because this thing was snowballing during the week. I mean, there was talk of people coming from all over the country to see her and all of a sudden you've got a police force that's probably equipped to deal with maybe local events and activities where you get sort of Bristolians turning up. All of a sudden you're dealing with people from all over the country. So I think they're probably trying to do the responsible thing uh, and just try and sort of uh, manage expectations. I, I believe that the um, there's a, a sort of a Young Persons for Climate uh, for School Strikes organisation who, who organised this, and I think they, they did, to be fair, liaise with the police. But I think no one knew how big it was going to get. A little bit with coronavirus in many ways. It was like no one kind of knew how, how this thing was going to go. And in the end, it passed off peaceably and, and it was it was organised well and there was a good turnout, but probably not the meltdown that a lot of people were predicting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to the world of books now because Hilary Mantel, of course, fantastically successful uh, author, uh, and she is just about to publish uh, the, the uh, concluding chapter on the life of Henry VIII's consigliere, uh, Thomas Cromwell. Uh, it's been printed, it's going to be released uh, on March the 5th. Now, what we need to remember is, of course, that she has won the book out twice for uh, this. Uh, will she, in fact, win it again? This means that her, her um, uh, the third in the trilogy, and why wouldn't it win it if the, if the previous two have been uh, up to that standard? Uh, it, it throws into uh, question exactly how the book of judges look at these things, as we already saw from the huge controversy uh, last year, Stephen. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, actually, we what I, I, sorry. <laughs> um, so I was just I was just looking at the article in uh, in, in the Times. That I well, I mean, it's, but it, it's it's um, it's very it, interesting, isn't it? How that will come. But actually, what what the Times is getting at here is that this is expected to be one of the best-selling novels uh, of, of of this year, alongside a so-called cleanstagrammer. Now, the cleanstagrammer is called Mrs. Hinch. Um, she's 29. She's a former hairdresser from Essex. Uh, and she has twice as many orders of her little book of lists uh, than Mantel, who's won the booker, as we say, twice, uh, had for The Mirror and the Light, which is her, her next thing. It's extraordinary. So what, what are people reading and why? It's depressing. I find, I find it deeply depressing. And in fact, you know, even in the time, I mean, the Times particularly since um, the certain Rupert Murdoch took it over, um, has, shows at times certain um, tendencies to be rather like, in other words, stablemates, the sun. Um, the sun, which had a reputation for, um, shall we say, putting pretty girls on page three. Um, so here we've got this serious article on page 21 with a tiny little picture of Hilary Mantle at the bottom and, and almost half a page of this Mrs. Hinch, who, you know, if, no, if nothing is, is, is glamorous, certainly, you know, standing um, with a sexy left hand on her hip and a, and a, a bottle of cleaning food in her right, her right hand. Um, and, and that's, you know, and in a bright red dress which really stands out. So you rather miss Hilary Mantle. And it's almost as if they're, <clears throat> they're, they're symbolically showing that this is what's happening with the books. And I do find that sad because... I am someone who, who who reads books, who loves reading books, um, who loves reading serious books, uh, be they literature, biography, history. Um, and yes, it's great that people read, but you know, a little book of lists produced by by um, this um, Mrs. Hinch. Hinch. What's your her real name is Sophie Sophie Hinchcliffe Hinchliff Hinchliff. Apologies. Um, 
uh, you know, is it really something worth 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 reading? Well, I mean, I mean, I don't, I mean Andrew, way. isn't it probably a good thing because it then means mm-hmm. publishers can use the money that they're making from that kind of thing to invest in perhaps uh, debut uh, fiction mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. that they wouldn't normally publish? I don't know. Yeah, uh, certainly the way I see it is you've got a kind of a, a, a clash of cultures, if you like, or worlds colliding here. So you've got, if like the established literary world, um, that of Hilary Mantle and her ilk, and that's, I'm not saying that as a bad thing, that's just what it is. And then you have the social media world, in the world of Instagram, and, and how it's, I don't know, making, um, breaking into this literary establishment easier, more accessible. So it's, it's, it's probably a case study for that one, if anything. So uh, maybe a case of watch this space. But as, as social media has done with lots of other areas of the arts, it's sort of breaking and it's disrupting. Um, and not everyone will like that. But yeah. so I, I don't think it's going to go any uh, go away any time soon. No, yeah, I think I mean I think you're absolutely right. But as long as we're still reading, right, Stephen? Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean it is it you know, it is very important because um, you know it's a way of of exchanging ideas. It's a way of uh, improving one's own language, um, one's own understanding. So yeah, no reading. I mean reading is vital. Um, but. Well, I would, you know, I would perhaps. Okay, maybe I'm one of these old-fashioned people that Andrew was very carefully alluding to across the other side of the table. There. <laughs> Nothing that's um, <laughs> um But I just think, you know, there is so there are so many fascinating books out there. Um, as I say, in various, you know, you don't have to just stick to one. You don't have to just read literature or history or whatever. Um, so many things out there that's so much to learn. Mm. It's, it's just, you know, learning is amazing quick plug for Meet the Writers today at uh, uh, a little bit later on today, I think it's 1400 today, uh, Paul Krugman is my guest on Meet the Writers, he is of course the Nobel Prize winner for economics uh, and he addresses many of the things we've spoken about today including uh, how uh, coronavirus will affect um, the economy, Uh, he talks about Brexit and many many other things too and then uh, the new edition of Meet the Writers comes out tomorrow and one of the guests there is Cristiana Figueres who was uh, the person who who led the UN uh, on their whole climate change odyssey uh, and uh, um, the uh, Paris Accord. So very relevant for now. But that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to my guests, Stephen Deal and to Andrew uh, Parsonage. Uh, supervising producer was Ben Ryland. Researcher was Giacomo Harper. And our studio manager was Nora Hall. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>